The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, join me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, chapter 7 is where we'll be. We're going to actually continue with uh, the sermon that I started last week. Last week we began looking at verses 25 through 40. I confessed to you at the beginning of last week that uh, there was just too much there for me to try to cram in, even as much as I wanted to be through with chapter 7. So today we come back and, we, and we're going to finish up, Lord willing, chapter 7 together. I appreciate Ethan's prayer that, uh, that God would keep me faithful to the text. Uh, I pray that I would be faithful. This is a difficult passage. Uh, I don't know if, if, uh, if you feel my struggle, but I am struggling through um, really, First Corinthians chapter six and seven, uh, just and really all the way back to five. It's just it, a lot of these issues are very hands-on, very practical, dealing with some really really tough issues, dealing with with sex and marriage and singleness and divorce. And I realize that there are people all over this room that are in different places, coming from different backgrounds. Some of you are coming out of some of these things. Some of you are contemplating going into some of these things. And so for me to stand here and, and, and speak to you, there is, a, there is a temptation to go soft on you. But I don't want to. And I, I think there's a little bit of me that wants to so that I can feel good afterwards. But I'd rather hurt you with the Word of God than, than to do more damage to you and not give you the Word of God. Does that make sense? I'd rather wound you so that you might get better. And the only thing that's going to make us better is the grace of God in Christ through his word. And so let's, let's look at this together. I want to read through this whole passage again, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 25 through 40. And then I'll largely, I'll give a little bit of review, but then we'll pick up in verse 32 and, and look at 32 through 40 today in detail. 25, now concerning the betrothed, he's talking here about those who are eligible to be married. These are single people. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Now, just to give you some context, if you weren't here last week, there are a group of people in the church at Corinth who had gotten engaged, then gotten saved, and now they are wondering whether or not they should go through with the marriage. Should we be married? Because largely there's a group of ascetics in the church that are teaching them that it would be wrong to get married. And in fact, they should discipline themselves in a number of areas, hoping that, that this discipline makes them more spiritual or more acceptable or more pleasing to God, which is just not the case. And you would expect Paul to come back at this and disagree with them and say, absolutely, get married. But he doesn't. He actually agrees with these ascetics, but he agrees for different reasons, and he wants to give them these reasons. And he, he says to them uh, in verse 28, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. That's part of why he's saying it would be better if you 
just stay single. Just because it's going to bring on things sometimes that you don't necessarily want to be dealing with in light of the present distress. And he says, I would spare you that. He's being pastoral. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And that little section there, 29 through 31, last week, the first reason I gave you, uh, our first principle to follow when trying to make decisions where there's no God-given command, but you still want to make a, a choice that's honoring to God, one of the first principles that we should live by is to say, I want to live in the already reality of heaven, even though I'm not there yet. And we want to take that into consideration when we're deciding on anything. I asked my family last night, sitting around the dinner table, what are some decisions that you're faced with to make that that God doesn't necessarily just speak directly on? And my daughter, without any hesitation, said, what to wear every day? Can you tell I've got a preteen girl in the house? There are things that we have to decide, and one of the things that we should decide, use to decide, is to say, God, is this honoring to you in a way that I'm considering that my address is not here? My address is actually there. I want to live in that already reality, even though you've got me here right now. Verse 32, this is where we pick up our passage for today. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. He's repeating this. Marriage is not sinful. It's not one is right and one is wrong. Singleness is not right and marriage is not wrong. Nor is the opposite of that true. Neither of those are right or wrong. They're not moral or immoral. They're simply in light of the present times, in light of the worldly anxieties and troubles. We need to consider these things. Let them do as they wish. Let them marry. It is no sin. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, we come to this passage, and 
I've taken a different slant on this passage. I want to be faithful and show you what God is saying here through Paul about marriage and singleness. But I also want to go a little further in the application of that, which I believe we're free to do. There is one point from Paul, one original message, one original meaning, but in the day in which we live, we can apply the principle there in so many different ways. So I want to apply this in a number of ways from this perspective, that how do we make God-honoring choices when there is no specific God-given command? Uh, I remember years ago, uh, I was in college. My younger sister, who I have a great relationship with, uh, was, was in college as well. She was a freshman at Carson Newman, uh, and, and my, both my, my older sister and her both went there. That's largely why I went another direction. I just didn't want to follow and go where they went. But I, I went to Cumberland, met my wife there. But my little sister called me one day in the middle of her freshman year, and she was just conflicted. She was just struggling. I don't know if I'm where I'm supposed to be. I don't know if Carson Newman is it. I feel like God may be calling me to to move up with you all and and go to Cumberland. And she would go back and forth, and I would talk through that with her, and we would talk about it and pray about it. And then she'd call me back, and she'd say, I I just don't know. I I think God may want me to stay at Carson Newman. I'm just not sure. And this went on for months. In the better part of a full semester, this just went on and on and on. And finally, I I just, on the phone with my sister one day, said, Christy, have you prayed about this? Yes. Have you asked God to lead you in the right direction? Yes. Then make a decision and trust that he will lead you. See, part of the problem is we sometimes waffle back and forth saying, God, please show me, please show me, please show me. But we're unwilling to follow what we believe really he's going to do. And we're, we're unwilling to believe that he's able to lead us even in the midst of making those decisions. Now, she wound up moving to Cumberland for a semester, only to transfer back to Carson Newman for the rest of her college career. Now, some decisions are simple like that. And in the big scheme of things, they don't matter that much. But there are other decisions that you'll have to make that will impact your life in major ways, but you can look through the scriptures all you want and you'll never find a thou shalt fill in the blank or thou shalt not fill in the blank because the Bible doesn't get that specific into the lives of every single Christian throughout the ages of time. So how do we make these God-honoring choices when there is no God-given command? We looked at certain principles, and the first principle that we looked at last week was that we seek to live in the already, even though we're not there yet. We live with this heavenly attitude, with this understanding that, yes, I am a citizen of heaven. I happen to be currently living on earth, but there's coming a day when Christ will come, and all of this will be put away. All of the sin and sadness and and death and dying and sickness will all be put away, and my home is there for eternity. So whatever I'm dealing with here for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, what is that in light of eternity? So that's, that's the first principle is we look at these things and we say, what does this matter in the big scheme of things? Will this help me to honor Christ in the long run? Or is this a quick decision that's based on things that the world is telling me that I need now. 
Well, secondly, a second principle that we should seek to live by is that we should seek to live undivided in the midst of our divisions. We should seek to live undivided in the midst of our divisions. He says in verse 32, which I think is the key phrase for that section, 32 through 35, I want you to be free from anxieties. With marriage comes certain anxieties, right? If you're sitting next to your spouse, you're afraid to answer that, right? You just sit there quietly. I got you. I know. Just, you know, give me a look or something. I I understand. With marriage comes certain anxieties. The first six months of my marriage to Lana was horrible. Now, that's transparent as I'll get out. She's sitting right down there, okay? So, So I'm being real daring and bold here. But she would tell you the same thing. First six months of her marriage to me was worse than horrible. We fought constantly for six months. We only dated for three months, got engaged after that, we were engaged for five months. We knew each other eight months and were married. So almost as long as we had known each other, it was bad. We fought all the stinking time. Everything was a fight. I would come home. We were both in college. She was trying to finish up. I was barely getting started. We were working little piddly jobs. We, we earned together what, $400 a month. Something like that. It was, it was ridiculous. Our rent was two sixty. dollars we, we had $140 to live on. It was just stressed out to the max, and we fought all the time. It got to the point, it got so bad, that somewhere toward the end of that six months, my wife, I came home one day, and my wife had packed her bags and said she was leaving. Now, I know that's hard for you to believe because you think, you must be so pleasant to live with. How could that happen? So... But the problem is that during those six months, I treated my wife the same way that a fisherman treats a fish. When he's trying to get it on the hook, oh, he studies, he pursues, he stays up late, he gets up early. He's out there when they're biting. He's out there when they're not biting. He's doing everything he possibly can. He's, hey, what, what are you using? What, what, what's working? What's not working? I treated my wife like a fisherman treats a fish. The problem was, on our wedding day, I got her in the boat. And I stopped pursuing her. And I stopped chasing her. I stopped studying her and trying to meet her needs. And I stopped trying to care for her. I thought, she's mine. You might as well mount her on the wall and been done with it. I thought that in that first six months of, of our marriage, I had, I had three guys that were my best friends on campus. Uh, Chris and Terry and Stan. Chris was uh, the best man at my wedding. And, and every day I would go to class, I would go to work, and after work I would go over to Chris Terry and Stan's and, and, and hang out. And I thought I could hang out over there till 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, come rolling back into the house, go to bed, get up, do it all over again, and she would be fine with that. The reality is I was not caring for my wife. And when I walked home that day, and when I walked in the door, and I saw those bags packed and my wife ready to leave, I had a decision to make. And just two, three months ago, I was back in Louisville 
for a, a class at Southern, and, and I, was, I was walking through the buildings, and I ran into Chris, my best man. And Chris said, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time. I said, yeah, I know. I, I've just been busy, got away. And he said, uh, he said man, I was, just remember we started reminiscing all, all, over all the old times. And it was right there in the middle of, of that lobby at Southern Seminary that, that I said to him, Chris, I don't know that I've ever told you this, but I just want you to know why our friendship abruptly ended. Our friendship abruptly ended six months into my marriage because it came to a point where I had to decide whether it was going to be you and Terry and Stan or whether it was going to be my wife. Chris had never heard that from me before. He understood, and he was, he was very much gracious to me in that. But literally, overnight, not because I was afraid of my wife, but because I loved my wife. And because I chose that I needed to be devoted to her, I ended those relationships. This world, marriage, will come with certain anxieties that all of a sudden the life that we have lived before is not simply just open to us to keep living. Now we have someone else that we must be concerned about. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now, 18 years almost into this this marriage, we have two kids. I have a 14-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter used to be when we would go out to eat, we could, we could scan the, the web for all these deals. The kids eat free night. Anybody else do that? Take, take your family out to eat because you look for the kids eat free. We used to be able to go and they, they would be free. That was awesome. And, and Lana and I would just eat. And we'd, this is great. Now I have a son that eats more than I do. And they'll come to the table and they won't even, you know, they won't even think about putting a kid's menu down because he's no longer a kid. They don't even put one in front of my daughter anymore, but sometimes she asks for one, wants, wants the meal that's there. But now, now it's, it's gone from me just eating and cheaply taking care of myself to now when I go out, I can no longer eat for four or five bucks. Now it's $40 anytime we go anywhere. And these are not bad things, but it's reality. And this is what Paul is saying. I want you to be free from anxieties in the day in which they were living when persecution was coming and and Christ could come at any moment why take on and this is not a slam against marriage you're going to have to stick with me on this but why take on extra anxieties in light of that is Paul's point Paul illustrates that by saying this um in verses 32 to 34, he says, the, married, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. To which when I read that, like Mark Dever, I said, really? Is that really how it is? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The unmarried woman is anxious about the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. I mean, think about the single men you know. Are all of them just living for the Lord? Are all of them constantly in their prayer closet, reading and studying and hiding the Word of God in their heart? Absolutely not. There's an important point for us in this, in that, yeah, they are free to be concerned and to be anxious about the things of the Lord, but those, that doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen automatically. 
You may be unencumbered by certain details of life, but it doesn't mean just because you are, you will automatically pursue the Lord. That's why Scripture tells us that we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. This is work at times. Yes, our hearts have been changed to run after God instead of running away from Him, but there are still moments of falling into the the lazy pattern and running away from the Gospel. That's why we rehearse this over and over in the songs that we sing. Because we're prone to wander. It's discipline. It does not come automatically. i got to fly. But he says, he, he contrasts the the unmarried man or woman with the married. He says the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And they should be. The husband should be anxious about how to please his wife. The wife should be anxious about how to please her husband. This is God's design. He's not saying there's anything wrong with this. He's just saying that when you marry, now you are devoted to the Lord, but you also are devoted to this spouse and this family too. 1 Peter 3, 1-7, just to show you that Paul's not condemning marital concern for one another. 1 Peter 3, in verse 1, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This doesn't mean weaker as in not as valuable. This means of a really different design. It's a picture here of porcelain. It's, it's, the, it's a picture of treating, treating her with honor the way God has created her and her creating, treating, treating him with respect and honor the way God has created him. So marital concern for one another is right. But why does Paul say that he wants them to be free from anxieties and then seem to say that you can either marry or not marry. What is it that he's really after? Well, verse 35 tells us. Verse 35 says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There are some things in this world that you and I will have to make decisions about. We will make decisions, and our decision may, it may not be good, may not be bad. It's, it's morally neutral. It doesn't, doesn't have any state. It's not sin. It's just a decision we have to make. But in making that decision, it will add things to us that now we have to care for. The, the word he uses here, he says, I don't want you to be restrained. This is a picture of a harness, a rope with a slip knot put over a an animal's neck. We sang about this earlier. It, it, the, the song called it a fetter. This is the picture here. He says, I don't want to fetter you. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to lay any extra burden on you. This is what the ascetics were doing to them. But instead he says, I just want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Single missionaries for years have repeatedly told stories of the freedom that they have to go places of great danger, to leave immediately, and to stay longer 
if they don't have a family that they also have to be concerned about. If a, if a single missionary man takes a family into a dangerous area, now he's not only concerned with what God has sent him there to do, but he's also concerned to care for his family, to protect them, and he's divided in some respect. There are some things that we're going to take on that will simply add restraint, neither good nor bad. They're just going to add restraint. Well, let's go beyond marriage for just a minute. And you're going to think that the old phrase, uh, I've gone to meddling. I'm going to go to meddling right here. I'm concerned about the anxieties that come to church members who value the, the same things that the world values and spends money that they don't have to get those things. This is why Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is slave to the lender. Our giving is down. This is no shock. You can look at this. You can read it in our bulletin every week. Our giving is down. I had the finance team, a member of the finance team, run some numbers for me, not looking at individual data, but just looking at the totals. And, and our first quarter that we've just kind of finished up, first quarter giving uh, is, is down uh, compared to all of last year. At our average weekly gift given in the first quarter is down $584 a week. And you say, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but do the math and multiply that over 52 weeks of the year. And, and what is that taken out of missions? And you know, I've wrestled with this and and I've wondered, why is it down? Some of you have asked me, what's happened to our giving? Why is our giving down? And I don't know. Do I think that it's because you all just don't love Jesus? No. I see in you, many of you, passionate hearts wanting to follow the Lord. I think instead what's happened is that many of you are so encumbered by debt that you're struggling to make ends meet. I saw a statistic the other day that 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And think about that. Just run the, the numbers. If you just look at the, the congregation here today, it's, it's a large number of us just living paycheck to paycheck. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's because you don't love Jesus. I think it's simply because you've just taken on what the world says is valuable. And this is not me up here throwing stones at you. I, I, I do this as well. Lana and I years ago started with Financial Peace University and, and went through that together. And we've been on a long journey together. But we are, we are really beginning to really, I mean, we're, we're close, close to being debt-free. I don't say that with, with pride in me. But I say that because I finally saw that the principle is true. Proverbs 27 is true. 22 7 is true. The borrower is slave to the lender. Imagine what we could do if all of us were debt free. Imagine what God would do through a congregation of willing, cheerful givers who weren't concerned that if they give this to the church, then they're not going to be able to make their car payment or their house payment. And they might come take those things from us. Imagine if we, I'm not, asked, I'm not after all your money. Please don't hear me saying that. What I am after is for you to be 
undivided in your devotion to the Lord. You hear me? And then preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. In the days to come, uh, we're going to be looking more at doing some things with Financial Peace University. And some of you say, well, we've been through that. Well, if, if you did and it didn't stick and you have it, you got off the wagon, maybe it's time to go back and revisit that again. And just leave you with that question. Can you imagine what God could do with a church filled with people who were debt-free and willing to give with cheerful hearts? That's quiet in here right now. Nobody wants to say amen to that. But what we do is we present the numbers to you every now and then, and we say something similar to around the fact of saying, uh, pray about it. And I agree, we should pray about it. But we don't, have to, we don't have to wonder, has God told us to give? God has indeed told us to give. We, of all people, Christians, should be the most generous people on the planet, investing in the mission of God for the kingdom of God. Whether it builds a name for Abner Creek or, or not, that's irrelevant. We should be people that are generous in giving. I'm not asking you to stop praying. I'm asking you to Go beyond prayer and begin to give. Now, let me wrap this point up. Be undivided in the midst of our divisions. We will have divisions in this world. If we didn't have divisions in this world, I mean, if we weren't going to have divisions, we'd have to go out of this world. We'd have to leave this world altogether because living in this world will require some divisions, some commitments that will bring on anxieties of some type, things that we have to be concerned about. It's just part of life. But before making decisions, we should ask ourselves, what am I really after? Am I really in my life after undivided devotion to the Lord? We should ask ourselves, if I make this decision, will this free me to serve the Lord more? Or will this enslave me and keep me from serving the Lord? We should ask, will this take away some of that freedom and keep me away from going where God might send me. We should seek to live undivided in the midst of our divisions. Now, I'm going to move quickly through this last point. Verses 36 through 40, the last principle of which we should seek to make God-honoring choices by when there's no God-given command. Verses 36 through 40 point to that we should seek to live according to our calling. We should seek to live according to our calling. I think verse 38 is the key verse in this section. He says in verse 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. How can both of these things be true? Well, because it depends on a person's calling. It depends on their God-given design. Not everyone is called to marriage. Not everyone is called to singleness. But some are called to either or. In some cases, those callings are permanent. In other cases, they will change over time. Uh, in, in Georgia, where we came here from, uh, about five years ago, I had a mother come to me. She had a college-age son, and her college-age son had come home, and he had been reading through his Bible, and he had, re- he had read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he had come home. He was dating a girl. They had been dating for a long time. They had previously been talking about getting engaged, but he read chapter 7, and he came home and he told his mom, he said, Mom, God doesn't want me to get married. 
And this blew her mind because all she could think about is, I want grandbabies. And she came to me and she said, would you please talk to him? I mean, could you please just just talk to him? I think he's misinterpreting Scripture here. You need to really set him straight here. At that point, I hadn't really studied 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If I had, I could have told her that, look, if God's calling him to singleness, then there's nothing that I can do to talk him out of it, and you'd be wrong to try. But if God is calling him to marriage, then God will show him that, and he'll wind up following that. Paul illustrates what he means in verses 36 through 37 when he talks about one man who is conflicted and experiencing sexual urges. So he says, let him get married. Let him do as they wish. Get married. He's he's conflicted. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, he's he's conflicted in this. He thinks, hey, you know, I I just don't know. And his conscience is bothering him. It goes on in verse 36, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, he's experiencing sexual temptation and urges of which he's about to act on. Maybe they already are acting on these. He says, let them get married. It's not sin. And then he, look at verse 37, there's another man. He's firmly established. His conscience isn't bothering him, not one bit. He knows, I'm okay in this. He knows God's called him to this. And he goes on, he says, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control. This is a man who sexual temptation is not an issue with him. He, he, he's, he's not about to go over that line because it's not a big deal to him. Now, you probably would find yourself in one of those two areas. But Paul contrasts the two, and he says, look, the first man needs to get married. That's God's calling on his life. The second man, he can stay single because I believe that's God's calling on his life. Both are right because they're living according to their calling. Which brings me to this, and I want this to help you. I want to finish up quickly, but I I don't want to skip over this because I think some of you will need to hear this. How will you know what God is calling you to do? How will you know what God is calling you to do? Well, I think the first place we've got to start is we've got to say, is there anything explicit that God calls me to or commands of me in the pages of Scripture? If there is something in this book that is written for the believer to do or to not do, we don't have to question that. We don't have to say, God, I know your word says, but... You don't, have to, you don't have to ask God, God, do you want me to serve in some capacity at my church? Because Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. So you don't have to, you don't have to wonder, I wonder if God wants me to serve in some capacity here. I wonder if He wants me to volunteer. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just supposed to come and sit and listen. You don't have to pray that because there's already written command and principle trumps everything, all other feelings. The problem is, in our day and age, we make too many decisions based on feelings. We need to look at the Word of God and what does the Word of God say? 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ, we, we, we do that. We follow. And when we fail, we turn to God. We say, I need you. I need clean hands, but I can't. You can. Over and over and over again. But it doesn't say we just sit back and not. Instead, we look to the Word of God and we do. I've got to hurry. Secondly, how do you know what God's calling you to do? Well, beyond, if there is no God-given command here in the pages of Scripture then sometimes God works through conscience. And we see that here in this passage where one man, he thinks I'm not behaving properly. The other man's firmly established in his heart. His conscience is not bothering him. The first man it is, it's this conscience that God has given them that either convicts or sets free. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 2 when he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God has given us a conscience that, that, that just sometimes puts the brakes on, right? I mean, there, there are some things that, that we know this is wrong. We can't explain it. We just know. There are some things we know, this is right. I'm supposed to do this. And we can't explain it, but it's this God-given conscience. But we must be careful because the conscience is not always reliable. The conscience is tainted by sin. And it can become distorted. This is what Paul also writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll deal with this probably next week where there are some that are, that are there, they've been saved out of a pagan background, they're used to eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and they live in a culture that fears that if they don't eat this meat, it's going it's to anger the gods. And so these Christians who've come to know Christ fall to the pressure of their conscience saying, you must also placate these other gods, and they're eating in these temples. The conscience sometimes is, is wrong, so we've got to be careful. That's why we always come back to the Word of God. Third is this, insatiable desire or lack of desire. How do you know what God's calling you to do? Well, sometimes God just puts something so strongly on, on your mind. It's, it's what you think about. This is what he means here when he says the first man's passions are strong and it has to be. The second man, his desire is under control. Sometimes God gives us these insatiable desires, but be careful because this logic does not work for everything either. Just like the conscience is broken, so is your heart. So is your desire. Because you will desire things that you are not being called to simply because of where you live, this residual drawing to the flesh. This is what happened in Israel in Judges 17.6 where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So those are the, th- the three things. Looking for a command from the Word of God. Asking God to show us through our conscience. Looking for these insatiable desires or lack of desire. Always, always submitting and yielding ourselves to the Word of God. If something that our conscience is leading us to or that we are desiring is directly contrary to the Word of God, then guess what? It's wrong. It's not the voice of God you're hearing. 
Well, I'm going to end here. We often feel I didn't have, didn't really deal with this, the, the, the last couple of verses where the wife is committed to her husband until he dies, then she's free to marry or not marry, but only in Christ. Um, what he says there is, is for the, the widow or the widower. There is freedom because your first commitment is to Christ. If you're going to get married, you need to marry a believer. Well, let me, let me wrap this up. We often feel pressure in trying to make these decisions, living our lives. We often feel pressure to be what other people or what society tries to teach us and tell us we have to be. And instead, what we ought to do is to say, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to be? Whether in the area of marriage or singleness or something else, we should ask ourselves, is there anything in God's word that explicitly calls me to this or forbids me from this? Can I do this in good conscience? Do I honestly believe that God wants me to do this? Or am I simply following my feelings? Church, I'll close, I think the same way I did last week is that we're going to make decisions in in our lives. Some of those are going to turn out to be good, right decisions. Some of those are going to turn out to be wrong. You're going to make some decisions that, uh, that sometimes are going to just, you're going to find out very quickly that was the wrong decision. And the thing to do there is not to withdraw yourself from the church and run away from God, but instead it's in that moment to say, God, I think I've messed up here. God, please help me make this right. Forgive me of sinful choices. If it's not a sinful choice you made, you made something in, a, in an honest attempt to find what God wanted you to do, Simply turn to him and say, God, I've made this commitment. Help me to honor my commitment. But God, God, I want to lean on you in the midst of this. God, be my sustenance in this. There are some times when you're going to make choices, though, that are going to be sinful and wrong. The Bible says that if, if we would in those moments turn and confess those sins to God, Cast ourselves on his mercy. Say to him what we sang earlier. I need clean hands. I can't. You can. Then in that moment, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin, to cleanse us and make us righteous. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Amen? I'm praying that we would be a church filled with people who are making God-honoring choices, even when there is no God-given command. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, I pray, Lord, that that you would take what's been said for those that are in the midst of some of these decisions, Lord, whether it's in the area of marriage or singleness, or God, whether it's something else, finances, or, or some other decision, major life decisions. God, I pray that we would indeed be guided by the word of God. God, that you would... Show us, God, the right thing. Show us how to follow you. Knowing that, God, there's nothing that we can do to ever cause ourselves to be more pleasing to you. But, God, we do want to honor you in those decisions. So, God, help us to be people that think, that live for the already, even though we're not there yet. God, help us to be undivided in the midst of our divisions. And God, show us what you've called us to and help us to live according to that calling. Lord, to make disciples, to go to the nations, to give as generous people to the gospel, 
to seek first the kingdom of God. God, show us what you've called us to. and Lead us out by faith. Give us the faith to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.